Hey everyone, welcome to church. My name is Matt. I'm so glad you're here. If you could grab your Bibles and please turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, this is just right before the book of Matthew in the New Testament. And we're going to be in Malachi today and a few other verses in Scripture as we look at our topic, which is God's justice. Now, we are currently in our established series where we've been journeying through God's Word from Genesis to Revelation in order to get to know the God of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, and see what building our life with God looks like. Now, before we begin, I have to tell you the story. A little while ago, I was reading an article in GQ magazine. And yeah, just in case you're wondering, it was forwarded to me as you don't see a lot of guys like me on the cover of GQ, but I digress. And the article was entitled, 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. Now, the title caught my attention because I'm usually told what I'm supposed to read, but this article was in the vein of cancel culture and political correctness, and it was comprised of new writers sharing what books that have been held as classics for so long that actually they should be forgotten due to some good reasons, uh, old traditions, restricting rules, themes of racism, uh, and other reasons of harmful views on sexual preference and gender equality that could be seen as offensive today. And also the book's authors thought that some of these books are just plain boring. So some of these titles were Catcher in the Rye, Huck Finn, and other considered classics that just don't fit within the current cultural standards. Now, I found the article interesting, but what really piqued my interest was that the Bible had made the list. Like the entire book was replaced by a novel. And here's the reason the author gave. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but in actuality have never read it. Those who have read it know uh, that there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sensuous, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. If the thing you've heard that was good about the Bible was the nasty parts, then I propose this book, Agoda Kristoff's The Notebook, a marvelous tale of two brothers who have to get along when things get rough. The subtlety and the cruelty of this story is like the famous sword stroke from below the boat that plunged upward through the bowels, the lungs, the throat, and into the brain of the rower. Now, to be honest, to be honest with you, my anxiety took over after reading this, and I quickly read all the comments and checked out how many people actually read GQ articles. <laughs> but after a few moments, my anxiety my anxiety calmed down, and I saw the article not just as an attack, but that it was written by someone who really cares about what is right and wrong and wanted to let people know and do something about it. And I also noticed that it was written by someone who wanted more book sales because two of the new books he suggested were his. But I share this story to say that when we talk about the topics that involve God, and especially today as we look at justice, this is something that you and I and our world care a lot about for very good reasons. There has been and continues to be unbelievable injustice happening in our fallen world. And to combat this, we hope that kindness and reason and negotiations will bring the peace that we're working towards. But we find that we're the problem. Our wickedness in our own hearts will stop this and we'll always fall short. 
So with the remainder of our time, I'd like to use the book of Malachi to look at a few things when it comes to God's justice. I want to see who God is, how we respond to him, and how his justice is for the world. Now, Malachi was the last prophet before the appearance of John the Baptist in the New Testament, a period of at least 400 years. And in the book of Malachi, there are 55 verses, which is why I chose it. It was short to study. Uh, 47 of them are in first person where God addresses his people. Then we hear their reaction and then God responds. Now in the book of Malachi, there are six main instances where the people question God's love and justice for them because they blame God for what they're going through. And this is of no surprise because when times are hard, it is difficult to believe that God is good. And that he loves us because all the things happening around us may seem to deny this truth. But this is the theme of the book of Malachi, that God still loves his people in spite of all appearances to the contrary. Now, Malachi's audience was skeptical because times were hard and the people, because of this, had become hardened. You see, God's people had returned from exile where they were under secular leadership, other leadership than God. And their expectations of what things would look like when they get back are quite different from the reality that they faced. When they heard God's messenger speak, the people's interpretation of the prophet of the prophet's messages, uh, what they were hoping for, pointed to that the land would be rebounding, um, rebounding with miraculous faithfulness, and the population would swell to a mighty number. The nation would return to its former glory, and that they would be under a new king like David, in hopes that justice would be served for their oppression, and all nations would come and serve them. However, none of these things were happening. In fact, the opposite was true. The land experienced frequent droughts. The population remained a fraction of what it had been, and they were still under the rule of Persia, a foreign power. And to all of these, uh, to all of these things, all of these realities, uh, Malachi, which means my messenger, tells the people in verse two that God still loves them. To which they replied, how have you loved us? Now, in God's first response in Malachi, we are reminded of what we have seen of God's love up to this point as we have walked through the Old Testament. We have seen that God's love is sovereign and an independent love. There's nothing like it. God is creator and ruler of all because he is Lord of all. Um, No necessity is laid on him, yet God loves because that's his nature. As three in one, there's always been love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We see that God's love is also unconditional. Israel was reminded of this time and time again, as we see in Deuteronomy 7, where it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because of the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, over and over again, we find that the motivating reason or cause of God's love for his people rested entirely on God's side for his namesake. When talking about God's love, we cannot say or we shouldn't say that God loves us because he sees possibilities or good potential in us. No, what we find in scripture is that God loves where there's nothing to love, nothing worthy of love. It's because he chooses to do so. And one more, we have seen that God's love is intimate and personal. 
He goes before his people and is with his people. He is a God who gives blessing as well as curses for those who trust and do not trust him. So in Malachi, uh, though God has loved his people, they reply with the ex- with excuses and effortless relationship. We see in chapter 2, uh, verse 17, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And, and I want to stay here for a bit as this is going to lead to our focus uh, about God's justice. But chapter 2, verse 17, God speaks again and he says, you have wearied the Lord. And to which they reply, how have we wearied the Lord? And th- this leads me to my second focus today, our response to who God is. Is it okay to question God? Is it? The answer is yes, as the Bible is filled with instances of people questioning God. An example of this is found in Psalms uh, chapter 73, where Asaph writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you been there? I mean, Asaph describes what almost caused him to slip back into the pit. Simply uh, simply put, God, I know you say who you are, but I am slipping. It's like I can't find a solid place to stand because just when I think I'm doing right, I see someone else getting away with the opposite of what is right. And basically, Asaph is saying, I don't understand why things are the way they are. And Asaph is questioning God about the how, the what, the when, the why of his working in history, which actually also includes us because we live and we are part of history. And it seems like this type of questioning, um, this doesn't, this seems to be okay. It doesn't come across as sinful because we are looking for and finding an answer anchored in the character attributes, being, and personhood of God. So what does this look like? Well, Asaph begins with the statements about God's character. Surely God is good to Israel, um, to those who are pure in heart. So in a real sense, the questioning is anchored in the knowledge of who God is. Now, where we're going to run into problems with asking God questions is that God is infinite and perfect, and we are not, which means that the answers are there, but we we might not comprehend um, or even apprehend uh, the truth and beauty that those answers really have. As we see in Hebrews 11 verse 6, uh, it reminds us when it says, and without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Um, So questions are fine, but by definition, every question has an answer. And when it comes to demanding justice, like the Israelites were doing with God, we can have expectations attached with our questions, can't we? I mean, we don't just ask, when will justice come? But we demand what it will also look like, that it needs to be a certain way. And some of these are for good reasons, equality, fairness, all of those things. No longer, but no longer are our questions anchored in who God is um, and that he will do what is right, but they are birthed from an independent source, ourselves. 
What justice should look like is based on our experiences, our ideals, and strength. And at this point, we, we're not simply looking for his answers, but we are now questioning his character. And when it comes to the matter of questioning God's character, there's a big difference between questioning God and questioning God's character. Now, the, the point I want to make here is not that there's a right or wrong way to question God, um, but rather, uh, rather that we are not to question God's moral character. Because whenever we question God, we must rest in who he is or all is lost. Now, it's a poor example, but during this time of quarantine, my family and I have been playing some games. Our favorites, or, or at least the one that we can all agree upon, is Uno. Now, contrary to popular, popular belief, uh, aka others' opinions who are playing against me, there are rules to Uno. In fact, they conveniently place a copy here, right here, in the game. Um, but, you know, it's so funny about Uno, everyone has their own rules. Um, you know, how many cards can you put down at once? Or, you know, once you draw a card, can you put it down? And, and yeah, it, it's so funny, which you can do, babe, by the way. But all of these rules, um, you know, they bring changes. Or at least for me, with these changes, uh, I like them because they help me out. Um, but without them, the game sometimes is a little bit less more enjoyable because uh, now I have to play by other rules. Now, regardless, in any game, there are rules and boundaries for a reason. And if one changes the rules, he or she changes the game. And it's no longer the same game. So to answer the question, where is the God of justice? We have to look towards his character, not our preference. Let's be clear. We don't reject God by asking questions. God can handle our questions, but we reject God's answers to our questions when we question him apart from faith. It's almost like falling back into the pit, to use Asaph's example from earlier. And though we might feel secure in our own strength, this is a dangerous place to be, uh, mainly because we will not understand what God's correction is for. If we are in unbelief, Will we even recognize the correction for what it is, or will we attribute it to something else? Now, when we look for justice on our limited knowledge, the truth becomes less clear. Uh, the truth becomes less clear in God's speaking, in our hearing of the Spirit's guidance. And as we saw last, in last week's sermon from Pastor Greg, faith and obedience bring clarity. We see in Scripture that the clearest answers were given to those who were open. For example, on the day of Pentecost in the, books of, in the book of Acts, the start of the church, the people saw Jesus for who he is, and they asked, what must we do? The Philippian jailer in the New Testament trusted the power of Jesus, and he asked, what must I do to be saved? Consider in your personal relationships how belief affects how you hear what people say. In the same way, we can question God and his works with the proper attitude, which means accepting that he may not answer your question in the way that you want. Consider Paul. Um, when he asked the Lord, um, you know, I, I have this thorn in the flesh. Will you remove it from me? And how does, how does Jesus respond? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, if you're in unbelief, this does not really sound like a solid answer, but if you trust God, there's your answer. 
But the Israelites, they don't trust God because they're saying at the end of chapter 2, all who do evil are good. Oh, excuse me. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. But where is the God of justice? Now, the statements are completely contrary to what we're told of God's character. The listeners had forgotten that justice is as central to God's story as, as his mercy is. It restrains evil and it defends victims. We see this all throughout scripture in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In Hosea 6 verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And then in Micah 6, verse 8, which I've been holding uh, dear to my heart this past year, he has showed you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But those in Malachi's day have reversed things. As far as they were concerned, since God had not favored them with material prosperity, his favor and influence must be with the wicked and not with the chosen people of Israel. Now, like most of the Old Testament, this book, Malachi, is written for a specific people in a specific situation at a specific time and in a specific culture. But we must remember that we are a specific people in a specific situation at a specific time and in a specific culture, and we can benefit from this. While reading Malachi, I can't help but compare the interactions of God and the people and us. God makes a statement, not because he has to, but because he loves them and speaks reminders of his faithfulness in their relationship with him. The people reply with questioning God's character, and yet in his mercy, instead of being done with them, he gives a reply and an invitation. For us, have we not asked these same questions in times of uh, systemic injustice, equality demands, and cultural shifts? Have we not asked the same questions of God? Where is your justice? Where are you? How have you loved us? Like the Israelites, I don't know how sincere these questions actually are when we ask them, because um, at times they can sound more like shifting the blame canceling the person rather than an actual relational pursuit. And it's funny, at no point in their conversation with God do the Israelites ask, what can they do? Uh, don't we do the same? We ask God all of our questions, but we have not asked, what can we do in this relationship? After all, relationship goes both ways. But we have just removed the characteristic of God, which is now a problem. Because we still desire justice, but justice according to whose standard? To what standard? Now, uh, for 10 summers now, my family and I have had the awesome opportunity of serving alongside a few camps in BC. And usually at every camp, I give an illustration about God's justice. Uh, and, and the way that I do this is I draw a string. So from one point of the stage to the other uh, point of the stage. And on it, one says good, and one says bad. And then I hold up some pictures of people. And what I do is I let the kids decide who should be good and who should be bad. And so, you know, I'll hold up just some, some bad people. I'll hold up a picture of Hitler. And all of a sudden they say, bad, bad, bad. 
And then I'll hold up picture of like Justin Bieber, you know, uh, where again, all the kids are like bad, 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 except for John Hurst. John Hurst says good. There you go, buddy. Um, but you know, recently, uh, it's so funny. Uh, I was speaking and I put up a picture of Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres. Now, usually all the kids say, good, good, good. She does so much good. She gives away stuff. She helps people out. Uh, she's making the world a better place. But then when we see like, oh, she's not perfect. She also makes mistakes and she may be a hard person. Now people are saying, oh, bad, bad, bad. Um, but Here's the thing. If we're left in charge, we're just going to go by how it benefits us, by what we see, what we call good and by what we call bad. But in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what I'll do is I bring all the faces, no matter how good they are, I bring them over to bad. Because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we've fallen because we don't trust who God is. Like Malachi, the prophet's standard of justice was the very character of God. But for the people, it was measured primarily by their material prosperity, what they felt they deserved. Like the Israelites, I think we're unable at times, due to our unbelief, to see the hand of God in the movements of our time, to discern um, the rebuke of God in our present situations. We long for justice, but do we long for God's justice? As it reads in the established devotional, um, it, it says something like this, that God's justice is needed, but it serves us more than we realize. Uh, not only does it comfort us as victims, it, it judges us as offenders. And we need to be honest about our sin and regret, and we need to regret its it's uh, the effects of sin. However, um, why is this? Because denial will shut the door to God's forgiveness and help. The trouble is guilt often leads into condemnation. And if we don't know how to change for God's benefit, we're going to stay stuck in our feelings and behaviors that further alienate us from God. So as we close, what does the world need to know about God's justice? Well, Malachi tells us, in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he gives us a few, a few ways to show us what God's justice will look like and how God is bringing justice uh, to this world. First, he's bringing justice in his preparation. Now, the people were wondering, where is the God of justice? Well, he was preparing the way. As we see, um, Malachi says, uh, or God says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. Uh, that, that's found in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. And this is connected to what we hear in Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in, in uh, the ancient world, whenever a king was about to arrive at a town or village, the messengers were sent ahead in order to allow the towns and the villages to make necessary preparations to receive their royal guests. And in the same way, the Lord will be announced by a promised forerunner. Second, 
uh, God's justice would be seen in his coming arrival. The Lord Jesus, God in flesh, is the messenger of the covenant. Uh, justice would be seen in his, also would be seen in his refining. As you see in verse 2, But who can endure the days of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Um, what it's saying here is that God will come to correct, refine his people. Fire is seen as him separating impurities and metals and soap, separating dirt from clothes. The Lord will do this. The Lord will cleanse his people. We also see God's justice in his judgment, as it says in verse 5. So I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, one of the problems with unbelief is that its presence means an absence of the fear of the Lord. And an absence of the fear of the Lord opens the door to insolent, impudent, shameless behavior. And this is a big deal because the Bible promises that every sin will be paid for, either by Jesus' death or by the offender's death in hell. Now, when we hear the mention of hell, we, we can think of all sorts of things, fearful things. But I wonder if our fear is misplaced. Consider Jesus' sobering warning uh, when he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Uh, and God's, or Jesus says, But be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, we see that in Matthew. Hell is horrible. But not just because of its, you know, supposed ways of torture or of its temperature. After all, Scripture describes hell in many ways, uh, such as outer darkness and a lake of fire. Whatever the exact nature of this place is, it is a place of judgment. And it is horrible, ultimately, for one reason. Because God is present. Now, now this sounds strange to those of us who are familiar with the definition of hell as separation from God, and then heaven is the place for those who have personal relationship with God. But Scripture does not speak in these terms. Actually, quite the contrary. If we read the Bible carefully, we see that God is everywhere. And we conclude that everyone is a creature made in God's image. They have a personal relationship with Him. That means because of sin and broken relationship, this will either bring a relationship as God, as Father, who gives blessings to his children, or as a creature of judgment. Now, go, going back to my camp illustration, um, actually, my kids are currently learning about punctuation and homeschooling right now. And in Romans 3.23, as we said, it does not say all have fallen short of the glory of God period. However, uh, there's no period there, but instead there's a comma to show that there is more to this. And it says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation Basically, someone to absorb our sin by his blood to be received by faith, by belief. 
Now, this is heavy because Malachi concludes by saying that God's justice will come through God's long suffering. Uh, as he says in chapter 3, verse 6, that God does not change. Now, this is interesting. The last word that we see in the book of Malachi is the word curse. Um, uh, it, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction or a curse. Um, so the last words of the Old Testament, the last word is curse. Then there's 400 years of silence. And then the first words we hear of the messenger that God is sending, John the Baptist, is repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what this shows me is that God, that if God is not in our conversation of justice, if he is silent, then things don't change. Injustice remains because people can't solve it. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want our own justice now, which is not even guaranteed, or do we want God's justice for eternity? You know, today through the book of Malachi, we have come to see by God's grace that the being and character of God remains dependable. We see in Malachi that Israel owed uh, Israel owed her continued existence to God's unchanging character and purpose. And if the Lord had not been patient, Israel would, would not continue to exist. But the Lord keeps his covenant, even when his people violate it time and time again. And as Malachi proclaims that the Lord does not change, as we saw, uh, when we question God, and I think everyone does at some point. I mean, we're not zombies after all. We're not puppets. <laughs> we're children. We must anchor ourselves in God's character before driving into the issue and situations that we face. If we cut ourselves off from our faith in God's being and character, then not only will we fall into unbelief um, and then into sin, but our vision, our perception, our understanding will become cloudy. And we're going to lose our way and we'll never find true justice from God for us and for the world. So if you could just join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you, you have spoken today and I pray that your word would teach us again who you are, who we are, and what this means for the world. God, this is not an easy thing to... Uh, to preach because people are hurting. Uh, pe people are looking for justice. But God, even though we are speaking and finding a voice and even have our voices sometimes taken away, your voice has always been, been speaking. And the only one who's taking your voice away is us. Is when we say, no, that's not how we want justice to look. But God, bring our hearts back to you. Help us know who you are, who we are, and why we need you. God, thank you for being the God you are, a God who loves us, a God who is patient, but a God who does bring justice for all, for, for everything. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.